Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Professor Paul Good. Paul is the Macmillan Chair in Russian Studies and Associate Professor at Carleton University. Paul focuses in his work on nationalism, ethnic politics and identity, in particular in a Russian context. So I look forward to discussing some of these issues on the podcast today, also in light of Russia's current war in Ukraine. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Paul. Thanks very much for having me. So as I mentioned at the outset, your research examines Russian nationalism and the presentation of nationalism by the current ruling regime in Russia, Putin's regime. So before we have a look at how these issues might link to Russia's current full-scale invasion of Ukraine, can you outline the ways in which Putin's regime has attempted to monopolize national symbols and narratives using a kind of a top-down approach. Yeah, so it's uh, I guess requires a little bit of scene setting. Uh, if we think back to the Yeltsin era, you know, the 1990s, there was an effort to try to create sort of a notion of a civic nationality in Russia, and it was not very consistently pursued. And partly it's understandable, I think, given all the things that the Kremlin was trying to do in the 1990s, never mind sort of just the regular turmoil of politics in Russia. The end result, though, was that by the end of the 1990s, there really wasn't a consistent nation-building design that, that came out of the Kremlin. And I think equally important, there really wasn't a whole lot coming from below either. It wasn't like you had people in civil society or in you know economic society coming forth with all sorts of different nation-building projects of their own. Um, instead, there was a lot of focus on day-to-day affairs. Um, there were a lot of grievances that people had, but there wasn't really sort of like a consensus about what the loci of Russian national identity would be. There is even sort of a famous essay competition that was held back in 1996 to get students to suggest what should be, you know, sort of the cornerstone of Russia's national identity. And the only thing that anybody could really agree upon was that being Russian meant you spoke Russian. And beyond that, you didn't really have much to work with. Now, what that meant in practice is that when Putin came into power, he was completely unconstrained. There wasn't really anything that, you know, was going to limit what he could do. It also didn't give him a whole lot to work with either, right? And so what he worked with was the inheritance from the Soviet era, reviving a Soviet-style patriotism, especially the symbols of the Soviet system. The memory of the Soviet Union was especially important. And in especially significant way that these sort of came together was already sort of in the very beginning of his rule when he reinstituted the old Soviet anthem, national anthem's music with new words updated to the present day. You know, and the purpose wasn't really to provide a new anthem. The purpose was to provide people with a sensation that they were actually a successor state, uh, successors to the Soviet Union. And you could even see this, like if you watch the Olympics year in and year out, you know, Russian athletes would always be mouthing the Soviet anthem's lyrics rather than the Russian lyrics, because nobody really knows the lyrics to the Russian anthem. But aside from this, there was also a concerted attempt to kind of kickstart patriotic education. And this started early in on uh, Putin's regime, and it continued like clockwork every five years, a gradual increase in the number of programs, uh, legislation, and funding. And then after after Crimea, after 2014, patriotic education funding skyrocketed, um, and it really sort of became 
a defining element of the regime. And bound up with this was not just the support for patriotic education and patriotism in daily life. There was also a coercive element too, insofar as you had the creation of this commission to patrol historical inaccuracies, you know, enforcing the regime's vision of history and the way that is bound up with contemporary discourse. Prohibitions put, you know, informally on academics, publishing comparisons between Nazi Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union was part of this, for instance. And so these sorts of things sort of permeated throughout society in such a way that it really created not just a sense of what the regime was trying to achieve, but also the boundaries of what it was willing to tolerate. This also created incentives for subordinates then to compete, you know, to try to interpret and to articulate what Putin's preferred vision of patriotism would be in the hopes that they would get rewarded, you know, by way of promotion or additional funding or what have you. I've written about this some with regards to the ways that the, the Gulag Museum, Perm 36, was taken over by regional administration as part of this kind of subnational competition, patriotic outbidding, if you will. And finally, I guess I would add that the, the culmination of this really was the adoption of patriotic constitutional amendments. You know, it's finally it's written now into Russia's constitution. The apotheosis of this being the prohibition on even discussing changes to Russia's territory, uh, which has now actually put Russia in kind of a box with regards to the present war, right? Because now that it has formally annexed, you know, four regions of Ukraine, another four regions of Ukraine, I should say, there is absolutely no way that the regime can actually negotiate their status going forward without actually sort of violating the constitution. And so, you know, it's become not just a cornerstone, but it's, it's become a, a bit of a cudgel in the way that patriotism has been enforced now, not only on citizens, but also on members of the regime. Yeah, that is interesting. And we've, of course, already seen, you know, parts of those territories being taken back by Ukrainian forces since mm -hmm. that so-called annexation from Putin. And it's interesting how all of this comes off the back of that failure of civic state building during the 1990s that you mentioned that then kind of left the door open for some reimagining of nationalism, patriotism in a way to sort of define the boundaries of Putin's own regime. And then also linked in with those territorial incursions into Ukraine. So seeing this intensify since 2014. You mentioned the concept of patriotism as well. I know in your work, you've looked into the ways in which patriotism is presented by the regime. You've found some discrepancy between the way in which a sort of a more, I guess, personal patriotism is understood and the way in which the regime is trying to present the idea of what is Russian patriotism. What is the discrepancy that you found in that context? Yeah, so I guess I should preface this by saying that uh, this comes out of the research that I conducted in Russia between 2014 and 2016 uh, when I was a Fulbright scholar. So I did research in a couple of Russian regions, a lot of in-depth interviews and ethnographic observation. So my observations are a little bit dated now. I don't see any prospect of being able to get back to Russia to do more interviews or ethnography anytime soon. Having said that, I, I think that a lot of the analysis still holds up. 
So the project sort of came out of this approach to studying nationalism known as everyday nationalism. And the idea is, you know, we often think about nationalism as something that's imposed top down by elites. And sort of like elites snap their fingers with a nationalist frame and people sort of like go Iran, and they charge off to do whatever they've been encouraged to do. But obviously, like not every nationalist message resonates with people. And the focus of everyday nationalism as an approach is to look not really at what elites say, but rather to look at what people do. And the ways that the things that people do, the, the practices that they engage in on a day-to-day -day basis reproduce the nation, you know, or in some cases they can challenge the ways that the nation is articulated from above. Now, I started wanting to look at everyday nationalism in Russia because I was really curious about whether or not this kind of, you know, monopolization of patriotism from above, whether it works, you know, whether it, it actually was congruent with the way that people understood what it meant to be a patriot or what it means to be Russian. And so they discrepancy, I think, comes from the common sense way that people understand patriotism. In Russian, you know, patriotism is typically defined from grade school onwards as love for the motherland. That's a lot to unpack just right there, right? But the idea is that patriotism is not political, right? It's it's because it's connected with this notion of love that encumbers it significantly. When people think about patriotism as love for the motherland, they think about it as something that comes authentically from within. It's something that is timeless, right? You don't, you know, if you love something, you love something forever. It's not something that you change your mind about. It's very personal. It's often bound up with family. And because it's timeless, it's different from the state, right? States, regimes, they come and go. And in that regard, the borders of the state don't matter. The institutions don't matter, right? It's all about connection with the motherland. And when people think about the motherland, usually they're thinking in a very personal sense about, you know, what Russians refer to as the little motherland, right? The Malaya Rodina. So it's where you, often where you were born or, or sometimes where you live at the time. So when people think about it, when you ask them questions about sort of like, what does it mean to be, you know, patriotic in your day-to-day -day life? And people think about the things that they do, the conversations that they have, sometimes the things that they buy in stores, then usually they are connected with these things that reflect that intimate connection, that personal connection that is very different from politics. As one of my respondents told me, you know, patriotism is... He understands it as love for the motherland, but it would be nice if it was mutual. And so it often felt also sort of like as a unidirectional kind of thing. It's something that you do. It's not necessarily something that you expect something in return for doing. Now, official patriotism is understood as the kind of patriotism that comes from the top down. It's the sorts of things that the state looks to try to get people to do and to say. So it's slogans about defending the motherland. It's participation in noisy parades. It's engaging in politics, which is transactional. It's not something that arises from love. You know, it's closer to profit, which is opposed to it, right? So in this sense, you know, people have an intuitive sense that everyday patriotism is very different from the state's patriotism. Now, having said that, they also view the state's patriotism as completely normal, as in that's what states are supposed to do. So they don't resent it, right? They don't believe that there's something inherently wrong about the state trying to further patriotic education, for instance. It doesn't really require any effort on their part. And when people talk about patriotism, it never includes things like voting. That's something that is completely absent, uh, the conversation of patriotism, which is not what the case would be, for instance, if you're having a conversation about patriotism, say, in a Western country. There's also a really interesting phenomenon that I encountered, which is that people not only define their everyday sense of patriotism as opposed to official patriotism. 
but they also describe it as being essentially opposed to everybody around them, as in there's a perception that everybody else is a patriot in the official sense, right? And and so, you know, people use terms that you've probably heard, like everybody is zombified, you know, or everybody else is like a, a ura patriot is the term that's often used. And this is not just limited to people who would consider themselves, you know, liberal opposition. This is generally sort of a perception. And so the common response I often heard was, you know, you know, I have a sense of everyday patriotism, but I'm not a patriot like everybody else, you know, in that sense, because everybody else is all for Putin, you know, with the salute and everything. And this is fascinating because it suggests that a lot of the monopolization of patriotism works precisely because it convinces everybody, not that they themselves are a patriot, but that everybody else is. It cultivates this perception that there is a sea of a patriotic majority in Russia that is firmly pro-regime. It definitely raises a threshold for collective organization or collective action. So I think there is this discrepancy in part because it also gives people a refuge from politics and their day-to-day lives where people already feel like they have very little efficacy in managing day-to-day affairs in politics. Politics is dirty business and they don't want any part of it. Patriotism can be personal and that gives them something to work with. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that discrepancy has a kind of an atomizing effect mm. on society in the way that you're describing it, that idea that everybody else is buying into this. I should add also, you know, one of the things that came up oftentimes in discussions was that patriotism was associated with not making trouble for others. So not just sort of like cleaning up around one's, you know, apartment building, you know, and keeping sort of like an orderly home and things like that, but also, you know, not troubling other people with things like politics, you know, or questioning authority or what have you. And so in a way, everyday patriotism is militantly apolitical insofar as people that are members of liberal opposition or activists would be viewed, you know, with disdain because they are just engaging in politics from the perspective of an everyday patriotism approach. Yeah. So we've seen with Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine this year, and I guess also going back to 2014, some observers have said that this is driven not only by a desire for territory and resources, but also by some kind of idea of the Russian nation, certainly by Putin himself, maybe elites in his regime, but possibly also on behalf of just the general Russian population. Can you share your perspective as someone who has followed the Russian domestic context for a long time? To what extent do you think that the factor of nationalism is a key driver in Russia's actions in Ukraine? Yeah, that's, uh, on the one hand, it's a very complicated question. On the other hand, it's probably a deceptively simple. The simple side, I think, is if we start with the elite side of it, the regime side of, of things. I mean, nationalism has definitely been part of Putin's rhetoric. And you see this very clearly in everything that he said or wrote about Ukraine, especially starting from his, his editorial that was published in summer of 2021. But the statements all throughout have essentially been along the lines that, you know, Ukrainians and Russians are one people. The breakup of the Soviet Union was unjust. Uh, Ukrainian independence itself was unjust, part of conspiracy, what have you, right? And that ultimately, you know, sort of like this simultaneous suggestion that Ukrainians should be able to exercise their self-determination as long as the self-determination means being part of Russia. In a way, it's it's almost a classical irredentist kind of, of nationalism. Of course, you can pick apart the historical claims to demonstrate the extent to which these rest on very sort of uh, weak foundations. Now, I say that's deceptively simple because 
yeah, all right, we've got Putin on record saying these things that are clearly nationalist. And also he was doing sort of like the thing that we classically assumed to be associated with nationalism, which is doing something which otherwise would be manifestly impossible to explain because it so weakens the country and is so unprofitable and so isolating. Why would you make this sort of sacrifice otherwise? Now, there has been, in light of this, a temptation to find nationalism under every rock in Russia's post-Soviet history. And we naturally, I think, try to bend narratives, historical narratives, line up facts in such a way that we can account for something that a lot of us simply did not account for. And to be honest, you know, most Russianists, I think, did not expect Russia would actually invade Ukraine the way it did this year. I would put a finer point on it, which is from the standpoint of somebody who studies nationalism, there's always nationalism to some degree present. It's just, it's part of the fabric of society. The question is, what kept it in check in the past? And ultimately, what specifically activated it and when, you know, in 2014, in the last couple of years, you know, what's what was the what was the trigger for it? Now, we know that with regards to the regime's relationship with nationalist, like domestic nationalist opposition, there was a complicated relationship that went up until basically 2012. And then, you know, after nationalists participated with liberal Democrats in the Bolotnaya marches, there was, you know, a real crackdown. And in 2014, the annexation of Crimea basically smashed the nationalist opposition. It also meant that the Kremlin already was absorbing a lot of the nationalist platforms, policy preferences, you know, into its own actions and into its own policies. And so they became inextricably bound at that point. So what changed then to lead the Kremlin to act in a way differently from what preceded it for eight years? Because, you know, you had this annexation of Crimea, which was described by many as being very patriotic, but was very clearly, you know, nationalist in the ways that it was described and in the ways that it was conducted. And I think there's a couple of things that we have to look at as potentially activating nationalism as a proximate cause for the invasion. The first is COVID. This has been theorized in a number of different ways in terms of Putin's isolation, in terms of adjusting his time horizons as an autocrat and thinking maybe he's on borrowed time. Definitely as far as increasing potentially a sense of vulnerability, personal vulnerability. Now, this is all a little bit of psychoanalysis, right? We can't really look into the mind of Putin, but I think these are sort of important things. But COVID also shined a light on state weakness. And so even when the regime was on paper stronger than ever before, it was highlighting gaps gaps in its ability to realize its own objectives, to keep its own people online, possibly its ability to, to dominate society. And where we really saw this then come together with regime anxieties and COVID was in Belarus in 2020, because Belarus in 2020 was a shot across the bow as far as the Kremlin was concerned. And Russia was very careful about making sure that its, its invasion of Belarus was not overt that a support for Lukashenko was sort of like very carefully sort of presented. But it's very clear, I think, that Belarus indicated the threat to the Kremlin that Ukraine's ongoing example posed. You combine that with sort of Putin's nationalism, the sense that Belarusians and Ukrainians and Russians are all Slavic peoples, the Slavic Brotherhood sort of uh, rhetoric and the perception that the breakup of the Soviet Union was unjust. I think all these come together. It was sort of a perfect storm in a way that by 2021, it was already in the works for this invasion. And that's when Putin started laying the groundwork with this op-ed and then additional statements that were made by other members of the regime, like Medvedev, for instance, who suddenly became a hawk 
nobody saw that coming and started arguing, you know, for these nationalist justifications for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I think that's why I say it's deceptively simple. I think there's a lot of spinning plates involved. I will also say this with regards to the societal perspective. One of the things that I observed after 2014 was that my respondents increasingly understood what had happened between Russia and Ukraine, and especially with regards to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, annexation of Crimea, that they understood and interpreted that in ethnic terms, in part because the geopolitics of it is complicated. Right? It's hard to understand, and people don't either have the resources or the will to invest in trying to come up with their own explanations. And so increasingly, what I heard was people saying that the problems between Russia and Ukraine was because essentially, you know, these are ethnic differences. This is somewhat ironic, given that Putin's turnabout to say that, that there is no ethnic difference between Russians and Ukrainians. But this is increasingly how people understood it, right? That this was a problem that, uh, that, that was likened to ethnic conflict and that these ethnic differences ultimately explained not just why Russia and Ukraine were now at opposite you know, ends of this fight, but also why that fight was something that was meaningful to everybody within Russia. And so in this sense, how ordinary Russians understand what Russia is doing today may be very different from what the Kremlin thinks it's doing, but ultimately it still meets in the middle um, at nationalism. You know, I think it has something to do also then why you see so much public support for the war. It's not just a rallying effect. I think people do understand it as a nationalist existentialist kind of issue. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think looking on from outside Russia at the current war, there has been some bafflement at the fact that there hasn't been more protests from within Russia towards what's happening. And I'm sure there are many reasons for that. But in some ways, also understanding this as an ethnic conflict frames it more within the dynamics of what we would think of as a civil conflict, which I guess is interesting on a number of levels. So given that there does seem to be some kind of tacit acceptance amongst a majority of the Russian population that this war is going to continue as long as Putin decides to engage in it, what do you see as the trajectory of this war? Yeah, I, I don't know that anybody can say for sure. And of course, the longer the war goes on, I think the more opportunities for contingency you know, we're, we're likely to encounter is and things that were unanticipated. One of the ways that Russia has tried to manage the war, and this is one of the things that's been the focus of my research recently, is looking at sort of the domestic media environment. And the ways that Russia has tried to manage the war at home and domestic support for the war is by minimizing it as much as possible. Um, and so if you look at the ways that the war has been discussed, of course, there was a lot of discuss discussion at, in the media at the start of the special military operation back in February, and then it's gradually sort of tailed off. There are a bunch of narratives that were thrown against the wall about a handful have are still meant, still kept in active, you know, circulation on broadcast media. But for the most part, if you look at regional media, there's not a lot of the war there. You know, there's some discussion of sanctions, but then people have been talking about sanctions since 2014. So I'm not even sure that people really associate that with this year's war, as opposed to sort of like a broad arc of confrontation with the West going on since 2014. So in that sense, what would really alter the course of the war would be if the war suddenly became personal for everybody in Russia. And we got a sense of this, right, with partial mobilization, punctured 
a hole in the Kremlin's ability to keep the war out of people's day-to-day -day lives. And, you know, there was a report that was released very recently by Medusa, uh, citing a confidential survey, um, in-house survey conducted by the presidential administration in Russia that found that support for continuing the war had dropped from 55% over the summer down to 25%. And that's a direct result of partial mobilization. So the longer this war drags on, and the more that people within Russia feel it, you know, personally, the less likely I think that the war remains a tenable political strategy for the Kremlin. Having said that, I also don't think that there are any clear off ramps, you know, for this. I, I don't think that at this point this is a war that can be negotiated. Certainly not from Ukraine's perspective, and very understandably so. But also, I think from Russia's perspective, what would negotiations look like that's not simply an ultimatum? And I don't think that Russia has demonstrated any willingness to present anything other than an ultimatum so far. On the one hand, I guess that plays well to the home crowd. But on the other, it also means that anything short of that is going to be viewed as some element of failure right, or weakness on the part of the regime. And that could also be very dangerous for Russia's government. It's a little bit of a hedge, right? But I think that the longer the war goes on, the less likely it is that Russia will be able to sustain it. And politically, I think it becomes increasingly risky. Now, I don't know that regime change also ends this war. And I, have, I guess I have to end on a pessimistic note there too, right? Because nobody knows what regime change would look like in Russia right now. But we do know that liberal opposition is unlikely to come to power. And even if they do, there are significant questions as to whether or not that liberal opposition would be able to provide credible security guarantees. Never mind anybody else who comes to power, right? So I think that the trajectory is going to be rocky, you know, because I don't see an easy way that this ends. I don't see an easy way for Russia to extricate it from this war. And every Ukrainian victory is potentially very dangerous. There's only so long that Russia can keep a lid on all the information that comes out of that. So, you know, when Russia retreated from Kherson, you know, I looked at the reporting on Pervy Canal on Russia's, you know, television news. The day that Russia announced the, the retreat, it was mentioned once in passing, and it was sort of presented just as repositioning to better protect civilians. Like nobody in Russia knew that Russia was retreating on the day that it did. And this sort of thing will likely continue as well, as long as people are okay with, you know, getting by with state media or using VPNs to get their information as it is. So I don't really expect to see a huge change from Russia's tactics, mainly because I don't know that it has the creativity or the resources or the ability to approach things any differently from the way that it has. But I also don't really see a potential for a lot of pressure for change from below unless it is something that people start to feel personally. And things are going to have to get a lot worse before that's the case. Mm -hmm. I guess in some ways those costs do have to mount as more families find out that their family members have actually died in Ukraine, which, you know, a lot of that information hasn't necessarily channeled back to family members yet. And also as there is further mobilization, which is already being talked about as a possibility. Mm -hmm. I will say this, I think that has clarified a lot of things with regards to what our relationship should be with Russia, with what kinds of you know support we need to offer for those who oppose the war, especially. And of course, you know, there's no question about the need to support Ukraine, but also it puts a lot of pressure on Ukraine to, you know, provide that example of democratic development, even in the midst of all the sacrifices and all the inspiring sort of displays, right? And so I think that there is something that comes out of this that's very powerful. And I think that that has potential to spread to other areas, if not necessarily to Russia, you know? And, and so I think we should continue keeping a close eye on Belarus. We should continue keeping a close eye on Moldova, especially a close eye, you know, on the Caucasus and so on and so forth, right? Because uh, I think there is 
There is a fundamental shift in the post-Cold War order that's happening now as a direct result of this war, and not all of the changes are negative. Mm -hmm. And there could be other fractures and shifts that impact the situation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate you being with me on the podcast today, explaining and shedding light on these issues in a way that goes more in depth to how I'd previously considered them. So I really appreciate you sharing your perspective with us today. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Gonka Varol for our theme music. 